Well, as you know, since Christmas, we have been journeying together through the Gospel of Mark. And last week on Easter Sunday, we pretty much wrapped up Mark's version of the Jesus story. The next thing that happens in the timeline of Jesus's followers is that Jesus returns to heaven and then Pentecost. But Pentecost isn't for another six weeks. So we're going to take a little break from the timeline and instead dig into the topic of hope. In order to get there, we have to tackle some other big topics. So in the next six weeks, we're going to talk about sin, about death, about resurrection, eternal life, love, and finally trust. These are some of the foundational concepts in Christian theology, and a good understanding them is going to help us as we work on the spiritual discipline of hope. Because as we discussed during Advent, and you can go back and listen to the message if you want to, hope is work. It's not a warm, fuzzy emotion that just happens to us. It's something that we can and must cultivate in ourselves, especially in this time. Because as we all know, hardly anyone in the world remembers the last global pandemic. We have never before faced anything like what we're facing now. And it's causing us to ask some hard questions of ourselves and of God. Our theology is only useful if it speaks to the situation that we find ourselves in. It has to help us make sense of what's happening now. And although there are some basic capital T truths about God, our understanding of God and our relationship with God adapts to fit our needs. So it's worth going back to some of our foundational Christian ideas to see if they can help us engage with the questions that we are asking now. These aren't the same questions that have always been asked. In the ancient Afro-Asiatic world, in the time and place where Jesus lived, people were asking questions about death. That's what their theology needed to address. And in Europe, in the Middle Ages, the questions were about legal guilt and innocence. And so they read and interpreted the Bible in ways that addressed the question of who is guilty. But in our culture, our questions are about suffering. We need the gospel to speak not simply to our own personal suffering, but to the larger suffering of the world. Does this faith tradition, this inheritance from Jesus, have anything substantial to say about suffering? Because as we look at all that has happened in the last century and all that is happening right now, our instinctive reaction is, what the heck is going on here? This world is really screwed up. In order to engage with that question, to engage with the problem of suffering and move towards hope, we have to talk about sin. Because sin is the concept that Christians have always used to talk about what's wrong with the world. We need to begin by remembering that our story does not start with sin. Our story starts with goodness. A good God speaks a good creation into existence, including good people. We have to ground ourselves in goodness or the rest of the story doesn't make any sense. Sin is a distortion. The very fact that we ask the question, what's wrong here, 
is evidence that we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. If the world and people had been created bad, then we wouldn't be surprised or disturbed by anything that happens. Our instincts, our spirits testify to the fact that this world and all of its inhabitants are designed for goodness, for wholeness, for flourishing. So what happened? Well, in our tradition, the book of Genesis tells a story of two humans who were tricked into believing a lie. Let me read it to you. This is from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Did you hear the lie? The lie of the serpent, the doubt that it planted in the mind of humanity is that God is holding out on us. That there's something we need, the knowledge of good and evil, and that God doesn't want us to have it. The lie is that God is not trustworthy and we need to watch out for our own interests. But in doing so, we get a lot more than we bargained for. Along with the knowledge of good and evil come two things, shame and fear. The humans hide because they're ashamed and afraid. And whether you think the story happened exactly this way or whether you recognize that this story continues to happen in each of us, it's the same. The root of what's wrong is that we believe the lie that we can't trust God and we need to make things happen for ourselves. That results in shame and fear, two things that we are not designed for, that God does not want for us. Shame and fear are distortions of the goodness that God intended for us to experience. And anytime we feel them, anytime we feel shame or fear, it's a cue for us that something is not as it should be. Now, of course, this story doesn't answer all of our questions about sin and evil. Like, why is there a bad talking snake in God's perfect garden in the first place? We don't know. Apparently it doesn't matter or the Bible would include that information. 
In our tradition, this is the origin story of sin, which is the distortion of what God intended for the world. As a result of humans' lack of trust in God, the whole system falls apart. The distortion of sin, this virus of sin, infects all of creation. It is so much bigger than our individual actions, although of course it includes those. It's not just the things we do that are against God's design for us. It's the fact that we can't seem to help doing things that are against God's design for us. Sin is not the bad things we do. Sin is the reason we do bad things. Sin is a force in itself. It is so powerful that we can't overcome it on our own. No matter how much good we do as individuals, we can't fix the distortion. We can't cure the virus. Someone else is going to have to intervene, and that's what Jesus does. If the original lie is that God is not trustworthy and that God is holding out on us, Jesus comes to prove that wrong. His whole life was motivated by love for us. He showed us in the flesh, in human form, in earthly life, that God is entirely trustworthy. And in Jesus' sacrificial love that led him to the cross, he showed us that God is most certainly not holding out on us. In fact, God holds nothing back from us. God gives us everything. This virus of sin comes from our pathological need to protect our own interests. And sin's vaccine is Jesus's willingness to give up his own interests. Now the virus of sin is still loose in the world, but the vaccine that Jesus provides means that we don't have to be controlled by sin anymore. We don't have to be controlled by shame anymore. Remember that when the first people stopped trusting God, they experienced a distortion of who and what they were created to be. They felt shame and fear, and neither of those are useful emotions. Those don't help us at all. They don't get us anywhere. Researcher Brene Brown says there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the discomfort that we feel when we realize we have done something that's not in line with our values, that we have done something we actually really didn't want to do. And a healthy feeling of guilt motivates us not to do that thing again. But shame, on the other hand, she says, is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the sense that something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And that is exactly what happened in our origin story. The shame that humans felt made them hide from God, made them believe that they were unworthy of connecting with God. But God still wanted to connect with them. God was still seeking them out just as God had before they believed the lie and stopped trusting God. God's love for them had not changed 
They were just afraid that it had. And it's still the same. The virus of sin fills us with shame and makes us think that we aren't worthy of connection with God, but that's still a lie. Jesus came and willingly took on the worst that sin could dish out, the worst that humanity could do. He took it all to prove to us that no matter what we come up with, God still loves us and longs to connect with us. Our recognition of Jesus' sacrifice is the treatment for the symptom called shame that we feel as a result of the virus of sin. Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul reminds us that even though we are sinners, Christ died for us. Which is why we should never again put up with feeling that symptom called shame. Are we sinners? Yes, we are. Do we miss the mark and fall short of the best that God intends for us? Every single day. But that is not an indictment of our character. It doesn't lessen who we are in the sight of God or anyone else. We have received our treatment for shame and our vaccination against sin. So we simply admit our failures, confess, feel the healthy guilt that reminds us we don't want to do that again, and move on to the next good thing that God is calling us to do. At the end of Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul describes the agonizing battle within us that sin causes. And he ends by saying, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, it has been done through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then chapter 8 begins with this glorious assertion, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So when we ask, what is wrong with this world? Why do terrible things happen? The Christian answer is sin. The virus of sin has infected everything in the world. And we shouldn't expect perfect health when a virus is raging. We should not be surprised that the world is a mess because the effects of sin are everywhere. But we don't need to feel ashamed of our part in it or afraid of the effects of sin because Jesus has provided a vaccine. And once a vaccine has been developed, the virus is beaten. It may take a while for the vaccine to reach everywhere, but the virus will be eradicated. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the vaccine for sin. Sin is already beaten, even though for a while we still see its effects in the world. Eventually, the vaccine of Jesus will spread through all of creation and sin will be completely eradicated. And when that day comes, we will experience a new creation and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And that is why we can have hope even in the midst of really awful situations. Even as we see sin ravaging our lives, 
our relationships, our communities, and the creation itself, we know that in reality, sin has already been beaten. We keep working for justice and peace, treating every symptom of sin that we find. And we grieve all the losses, the real losses, every time sin gets the upper hand. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We keep looking toward the future. Jesus has already conquered sin and its symptoms of shame and fear and injustice. We have been vaccinated against sin and are now frontline workers in God's work. We may not see this new creation in our lifetime, and we might even lose our own lives in the fight against sin. But that would put us in the same company of Jesus, which would be an honor. God is trustworthy. God is holding nothing back from us. And we have every reason to be hopeful because sin does not get the last word. Amen. Before we end our time together this morning, I want to offer you some space for reflection. So settle in. Notice if you're holding tension anywhere in your body. When I started talking about sin, did your shoulders hunch? Did your jaw clench? If so, relax those. You might want to close your eyes to block out any distractions. Now take a deep breath in and let it out. And open your heart and mind to what the Spirit wants to say to you this morning. Do you need some treatment for the symptom of shame? Is there suspicion deep within you that you are somehow unworthy of connection with other people or with God because of sin? It's not true. Allow the Spirit of God to do a work of healing in you this morning. Receive God's wholeness and God's love right where you're sitting. Is fear getting the better of you, especially in this season? Are you afraid that the effects of sin are too powerful? Receive God's healing this morning. Remember, sin has already been conquered, even though it's still running around for a while. You do not have to be afraid. Ask God to infuse you with hope this morning. like an ivy bag full of hope going right into your body, refreshing you, restoring you, 
healing you. Now I'll say a closing prayer. God of hope, we thank you for your vaccine. Help us to trust that it is working in us and all the world and give us the courage to be your frontline workers against injustice. Amen.